Hey, uh, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the Engine 25 YouTube channel. Uh, Engine 25 reviews. Uh, it's a little thing I started up to uh, chat with some friends about uh, movies that we the, that we're able to see, which is kind of a challenge sometimes these days. Uh, but uh, if you like what you see, uh, please hit that uh, subscribe button, ring the bell so you know when we post a video. We are also on Spotify now. You can get us in uh, audio form. And uh, we really appreciate you hanging out. So uh, here are our, our panelists for today. Uh, you've seen them both. If you're a regular viewer, you've seen them both before. We have uh, Dr. Dan, who is um, uh, playing dad duty right now, and uh, Ed to Abby, who's our, our wonderful special guest. How's it going? Um, how's it going? Yeah, hey. Yeah, she's super attentive. I like it. And, um, and of course, uh, Katie, who's been on several episodes. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm good. Okay. Um, yes, uh, Dan is a uh, PhD uh, film scholar uh, and writer, and Katie is a, a hopeful PhD and film scholar. Yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but if, if, if you've seen some other episodes, you probably know each of them. But um, how's, uh, how's it been going? What have you been... Uh, you've been to the theater lately, other than the topic of the show that we'll get to. Uh, Dan, I, you go first. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I was saying before we started, I, I saw the last duel. I'm I'm lucky. I'm uh, I'm right right now. I'm from Georgia. I'm sure I'm sure your your listeners all know where you know where you're from. But uh, I live in Pittsburgh in like Squirrel Hill, uh, which is where Mr. Rogers lives. So there's like a nice little nice. like old theater like right down the road. And so I've been able to sneak out a couple of times. And I saw the last duel. I saw the card counter a few weeks ago, Paul Schrader's new film. Yeah. Um, which is weird. <laughs> but that's, that's what you expect from him. Um, and uh, gosh, there was one other big one. I'm blanking on it. Uh, Oh, yeah. I think before that, it might have been the one we talked about, The Green Knight, or uh, even Nomadland, maybe. Okay. I, I look back, it's, that was like three months ago. I, I don't know, work has been, work has been crazy, right. and COVID got really bad, so it was hard to go see movies, so I kind of took a brief break on the podcast, which may or may not happen again. Um, what, have, uh, what have you been watching, Katie? I've been lapping up my ability to actually go to the theater. Yes. <laughs> And yes. um, Atlanta's I mean, in the green zone. Like they, they, they pulled the mask <laughs> mandate. Like hospitals are at non, uh, or like normal non-pandemic capacity. Like it's wow. um, not not the same in the county where I live, which is a little further north. But at Atlanta mm -hmm. City is is doing great right now. So that's that's wonderful. Yeah, I I'm in Western Mass, Massachusetts. So uh, we're still dealing with some COVID stuff. For sure. uh, it's definitely it's still a thing around here, yeah, but it's yeah. you know it's was but much I'm worse three weeks ago. I, yeah, I'm I'm glad to have a movie theater, a few movie theaters in the area that I can kind of bop around to, depending on who has what and what's playing where. So I got to go see. I actually had to go up to Amherst, which is about forty minutes away north of me, where I'm at, and still um, in Massachusetts. Yep. Yep, still in Massachusetts and see last night in Soho. But before that, I had to go about 40 minutes south to into Connecticut to see the French Dispatch. So 
I'm kind of bopping around everywhere, but making yeah, the Yeah, I've been uh, with with AMC Stubbs. They do like cheap Tuesday nights. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I uh, and there's a, a really nice AMC and a really shitty AMC that was nice when we were in high school. Uh, they're both on my way home. Um, so to, you know, depending on when when show times and stuff line up, um, mm. that's that's how I've been been doing my movie nights. Is that the um, one in uh, Kennesaw that you're talking about? Yeah, AMC Barrett. Like, it's a shithole now. And that's, like, I've seen so many movies at that theater, and it's so, like, it's so upsetting. Because, it like, that used to be the place. You know, they there was the first one in town that had IMAX, or at least the first one that was, like, within reasonable driving distance to me. Brandon, do you remember the the horrible movie theater in Statesboro? The, oh, yeah. And it, it was... Car- Carmike? It, it was a Carmike. It's an AMC now. Um, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I grew up in Statesboro, so I mean, I think it is the one in Dublin changed to AMC, and maybe that, I'm getting, getting confused. That movie theater was always gross. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like it sounds terrible, and you can hear the movie next to you in your yeah. theater. Uh, yeah. No, I actually have recliners now in my movie theaters, most of them. So I'll take it. I Absolutely. Um. What have I took took the the last couple of weeks to catch up on my Marvel? I had not seen the Eternals, or I know the Eternals just came out a week ago. I had not seen Shang Chi, which we just watched on Disney Plus, and then the other day I saw the Eternals, um, which I enjoyed. Um, some weird short, but th- I what how do I want to say? I am glad Marvel let them do something that was very different. Like, mm-hmm. and in fact, like I think. When we were talking about Dune, uh, Katie and I, we mentioned something like we wouldn't describe Marvel movies as like Shakespearean, and it's probably the closest to the, a Shakespearean thing that you like. Just the the way that like, the it's 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 tied in really thickly with history, but um, you know, old old friends that stab each other in the back and that kind of thing. Like it's very, it's just it's was not like other superhero movies, which I appreciated, and I want them to do more of. I would like them to to hit better on the execution next time. Um, but, you know, and the cast is phenomenal. Like, there's so many great actors, uh, and it's like, it's a really colorful, diverse cast, and it's, um, like I said, I enjoyed it. It had some uh, some weird choices, in my opinion, but, uh, you know, could have been a lot worse. Um, Shang-Chi, on the other hand, we adored. Um mm. That was the, again, I've structurally not that unique for a, like a superhero movie, but um, like the fight choreography was really cool. And like the 10 rings are an amazing superpower. And we are all in for anything that has Aquafina in it. Even, even the stuff that's not so good. Like, uh, I don't know. She was in that, that Ocean's 8 with Sandra Bullock. Um, and that movie sucked. But um, I love that movie. What? <laughs> oh, so, okay. To be fair, I am not, I, I wasn't a, the biggest fan of the old ones either. Uh, and it's I would I would watch that one before I watched either of the other two sequels. So like, Ocean's thir- right, Ocean's fair. twelve or thirteen. I would watch Ocean's eight again before I watched either of those. Um, fair, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so we're uh, here today to talk about Last Night in Soho, which uh, was one I was very excited about. I'm a a big fan of Edgar Wright. Um, but uh, let's uh, I'll go to you um, first, Katie. What? First of all, what's your your history with Edgar Wright movies, and then what do you think of this one? Um, my history with Edgar Wright really 
goes back to just Baby Driver. I was looking at his filmography, and I know he did Scott Pilgrim. I somehow never got into that at all. <laughs> so uh, I um, Scott, I, Scott I, Pilgrim is a is a really niche kind of thing, but there you know, the, some of the some of his other earlier movies are probably more broad appeal. But um, what do you think of yeah. Last Night in Soho? I really liked Last Night in Soho, but I didn't know what to expect going in. So I was kind of caught off guard, but I liked that. I like going in blind as much as possible. But I will also say that this movie shook me in a way that emotionally affected me in a way I wasn't expecting, which is good. But I don't know if that's the best thing for right. people going this movie in particular I mean, and we we talked with with the last duel we you mentioned like there were some triggering things in it for mm. for uh women or uh abuse vict uh is abuse victims the correct way to say that i don't want to i don't want to sound yeah sound uh, bad about it but yeah, yeah um um so and there's pro there's a little bit of that here too uh what about you dan what's how do you like edgar wright movies and then what did you think of uh, general thoughts about last night so so I have to confess that I have not seen, I think the only Edgar Wright film I've seen was Hot Fuzz and it was like when it came out. So that was like a long time ago. That's high school. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I think I was like, you know, a scene, I think it was like the last semester of high school, you know, so I don't know. You, you were a year ahead of me, right? Yeah. I, I graduated in 07. So yeah. we had like the Bond uh, t-shirts for our graduation. Excellent. It's very odd. Um, but yeah, so I, and so, I've, you know, I've, I've followed sort of peripherally uh, the films that have come out kind of since then. So I kind of know, I feel like I have a sense that he's doing like, you know, it, it, like, like the Coen brothers, like Scorsese, it's a very like cinephile kind of cinema where he's um, just pulling lots of, of, you know, different genres, other films kind of together and sort of remixing them and and so on and so forth. And so that was kind of like my, my expectations. Um, and so I went in and the thing that I kind of was drawn to, because um, my research in, in film uh, is mostly like adaptation and remakes and like, you know, homage and some of that stuff. And I just kept thinking about uh, like, you know, the, the Bond films that are being referenced, Thunderball oh, yeah. very recently. Yeah, the, 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 the giant theater marquee that says Thunderball. <laughs> Right, and then Diana Rigg, which obviously, you know, he's oh, casting yeah. for her uh, for her association. And her, her last role, unfortunately, but one that's it's good to remember. It's yeah. a really, you know, like, we can get in, we'll get into the film, but, like, you know, I, I would I would say it's, you know, if you're looking for a recommendation, a little, like, pull quote, you know, worth seeing for, for Diana Rigg alone, I would say. She's yeah. Just, she's, she's just one of the, you know, the high points of the movie. But um, the other, like, real... You know, this really, like, most of the time I was watching this, I just kept thinking, this is like, this is like a stealth remake of, like, an unacknowledged remake of Roman Polanski's Repulsion, which is also set in, like... Have I seen that? What? It's it's on Criterion, so it's, okay. it's, it's floating around there, but... um. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know what its, what its reputation is right now, but it's... It, there's a lot of, like... It's not, like, one-for-one one or anything, but, like, I... I would be really surprised if, like, the next time Edgar Wright goes to, like, the Criterion Closet and those little videos that they do, he's not, like, pulling out Repulsion. Because it's just, uh, the vibe is just very similar, you know? I like it. Okay, yeah. so, yeah, I am, I would say, uh, a 
better than average Edgar Wright fan. Um, I the only movie he's done that I really don't like is that is The World's End because um, it, it's like everything bad about Shaun of the Dead uh, amplified, and also like none of the characters are all the, are likable. Um, but let's the the kind of the through line with his movies because they're like honestly as for, uh, probably from a genre point of view there are most of them are very different from each other but there's there's always a lot of style um you know he makes very clear stylistic choices uh and they're often very different but they're often very different movie to movie other than like music is always important in some way um and especially like in certainly in the last night in soho like the the 60s kind of bar scene uh you know that that music is always there and it's diegetic which i really like it's music that the the characters can hear um but yeah let's i uh i got into edgar wright probably in high school as one we were we got we were at my buddy's house probably one weekend and we got sick of playing halo at 3 a.m so he put on hot fuzz and we were all like this this is great um and then, so, uh, and that was, Shaun of the Dead came out before that. I went back and watched that one. Um, and then we all went to see uh, um, Scott Pilgrim together. Um, and, you know, and I haven't, it's, that's based on a, on a comic book, which I'm, was aware of, but have, have still not read, you know, 12 years later. Um, and it's, I, there. I, I want to compare him to like a Wes Anderson in that his movies are like just a little quirky and not to the same, in the same way or the same degree as Wes Anderson. But you know, like there's a, there it's, they're very unique to him. And I would say last night in Soho turns that on its head almost because it's nothing like any of the others. Um, and that was, you know, I was on that note, I was really excited about it because, you know, I watched the trailer, uh, not honestly not knowing what to expect and that it's, no, you know, most of them are like kind of comedies. Um, I would, I would say that Baby Driver is probably the most, uh, or the, the least intentionally comedic movie that he's done up to that point. Um, and I love Baby Driver. And there's another one where the the music is. It's first of all, it's diegetic. The 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 main character has a he suffers from hearing loss, so he always has his headphones in. Um, and so like the the move the soundtrack of the movie is the soundtrack of his life basically um so you know the music is uh, obviously really important um and yeah he's the uh, last night in soho is a love letter to the 60s in a lot of really interesting ways that i thought were were very cool and in very different ways than like once uh once upon a time in hollywood came out a couple of years ago and i would say uh you know that was also a love letter to this era but emphasizing completely different things about it you know so it's Thumbs up. I like it. Yes. Um, so in, and well, we'll get into some specifics, but overall, I really like this movie. You know, um, I, uh, I've liked Thomas and McKenzie and a couple of things. Um, Anya Taylor-Joy, I don't, I don't know that I've ever disliked her, even in movies I wasn't a big fan of. Like, um, she didn't, she didn't do much in like Glass, but I thought she was really good in Splice. Or not Splice, uh, Split. The, the, um, the Shyamalan movie where James McAvoy plays like the, the schizophrenic. Um, yeah. Yeah. She was really good in that. And she's really good in the witch. 
um, yes, I, which that is was a the first time I saw her. I think that was her first film, right? Uh, far as far as I know, yeah. And it's uh, Robert Eggers is a kind of an interesting thing, but it's I you know I've loved both of his movies too so far, and there's another one coming out next year, so that that'll be cool. But um, the one thing I definitely I definitely want to touch on is the visual flair of this of last night in Soho. Um, the brief. Uh, synopsis of the plot here is Thomas and McKenzie's character, uh, Eloise wants to be a fashion designer. Um, the beginning of the movie, she's invited to attend a fashion design school in London. You know, she's kind of a, kind of a country girl lives out in the middle of nowhere with her grandmother and gets, um, it's accepted to a school in the big city. Um, and then it's, uh, at first an interesting experience. Um, because she's, you know, she's very different than all of the, the other, college folk who stay up all night and uh they in, in enjoy the uh the alcohol and as as college students tend to do um so she uh moves out of student housing and moves in with this uh little old lady uh played by diana rigg um and then she's she realizes when she goes to bed she dreams that she is a uh a woman from the sixties who wants to be a singer, uh, named, um, Alexandra. What's her, her Sandy. Sandy is her, her nickname. Yeah. Um, and she, you know, she walks around, uh, in 1960s England and some stuff starts to get, uh, get a little weird, but that's the kind of the premise. Um, and I like it's, that you had mentioned that yeah, it's got kind of a similar, uh, nostalgic quality about it like once upon a time in hollywood so i added that to my description of this movie which i was thinking about when i watched it because like i said i had no idea what i was really getting into and so i was thinking this feels like mean girls meets midnight in paris meets the exorcist meets once upon a time in hollywood that's the only way i really know that, how to that is uh, watching this movie that's a very <laughs> unique sandwich and you know, you cram them all together between between two slices of bread, and it's it makes for a an in, it's it's a it's an interesting movie. And I you know, um, what what do you what would you compare it to, Dan? I, I love the uh, the Once Upon a Time uh, comparison, uh, just because it's it's interesting, you know, like these two films coming out and within a couple of years of each other, where the subject of the film is, is like mythologizing and demythologizing the sixties. Um, so that's oh, yeah. probably the most immediate kind of, um, reference. I mean, and, maybe, uh, uh, Edgar Wright and Tarantino obviously do that in very different ways, <laughs> narratively and stylistically, but it, yeah, there's once upon a time in Hollywood was like right in the front of my head when I was watching it. Yeah, right. Well, it's it's interesting because I'm just, I'm thinking, you know, back to like Oliver Stone, for example, just kind of a random name to throw out here, but he's in the news again for his, uh, his JFK, you know, documentary. So I've been kind of watching some, like I watched The Doors, you know, so Abby here can uh, get her classic rock disc, you know. And <laughs> it's, it's interesting because we're entering this period of time now where you have like directors like Tarantino and like Edgar Wright the Coen brothers with Inside Lewin Davis. It's obviously not Hollywood per se, but it's New York, like the indie like music scene in the 60s. And it's interesting to see like how these directors are in effect like 
making movies about periods where they like were either not alive or were like really little kids. And so what you're getting is not, you know, it's an interesting mix of like, like handed down sort of like, you know, knowledge of the period and also just like the movies of the period kind of become sort of the, the thing upon which the film kind of draws the most inspiration from in both cases. So, so again, just going back to what I said at the beginning, I mean, I just could not stop thinking about like repulsion seemed like an obvious sort of source. Um, the Bond films, like even just honestly, I mean, the use of color felt very like 60s. Like you just don't yes. see movies. And there is a, that's a specific beat I want to, I'll let you finish, but there's a specific beat I want to mention about the color. Yeah, right. Well, it's just, it's, I just feel like a lot of the times, you know, when I'm watching something, you know, from the last 10 years, last 20 years, I don't know if it's like just, you know, I don't know if we're, it feels like almost we're like still sort of stuck in like the early 2000s, sort of like what TVs could kind of do then is sort of still like informing like the color palette, which tends to be in a lot of movies pretty like bland and kind of, you know, sort of nondescript or just outright, you know, drab in some cases. And just like a lot of like, you know, really sort of simple sort of medium shots and like stuff that like played well in those old CRTVs from like 2001, 2002. That's fair. And so it felt like kind of a real throwback to sort of see a film where like so many of the shots, I felt like I, just like the, the point of the shot was like, this is a really like vibrant, you know, colorful. I, I loved all the stuff in, inside the nightclub. So it's like uh, when um, Sandy is walking down the stairs and you have like the series of mirrors and you mm-hmm. see like 20 copies of El, of Ellie. That was um, just, you know, stuff like end up, the, like I almost want to say the color is even more vibrant when you would walk inside these places than it was out on the street. Like it's really, um, like. I mean, uh, the yeah, first please. the first time I was really cluing into the use of color was, I mean, they 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 introduced it in such a subtle but effective way because. You know, there's a French restaurant on the corner. I know what you're going to say. It's the bit, it's she, when she's awake versus when she's asleep. No, no. All right, go, ahead, go on, go on. That's what I was going to mention. Yeah, But go the on. first time she goes to sleep, and it clues you in onto the entire plot of the movie after you watch it, is that, I mean, spoiler alert. All right, I'm going to probably spoil a little bit. But yeah, you, uh, go ahead. That French restaurant, you know, the colors are white, blue, and red. Right. And so that red light is totally shining all on Ellie going to bed for the first time in this room, which we later find out was where Sandy was prostituted. So and the, it's coming the, in the, the neon light was where I was what I was going to talk about, because when she is awake, that neon light flashes red, white and blue. When mm, and when that. she's asleep, it's always red. I did not notice that. Yeah, it 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 cycles when um when she when she's lucid, the color cycles, and when she's when she's asleep, it before anything else happens, any other kind of weirdness, it tells you very specifically she is asleep right now because it's it still blinks, but it's always red, and that was the 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 moment I was going to mention with when Dan was talking. Interesting. Yeah. Well, when I when that first shot of her, that first night she goes to sleep. I mean, there's just this great, like, silhouetted shot of her sitting 
I think on the bed and the fact that it just kind of like lingered on that red like I knew exactly where it was going and what it was kind of you know saying with with light and I thought it was just so so effective I was just enthralled by it like right when you know I was drawn into the movie was that shot with with the red light coming in I was like all right as a woman I know where this is going something not good (laughs) happened here yeah um and he before we have any idea what that is he lets us know it's like even that that subtle change that you know I guess you it, it sounds like you didn't pick up on it at first you know this there's before we know anything about what actually happened to Sandy, we know that something is not not quite right about it. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, it's a it's it's a subtle thing, and it's a really important stylistic choice. Um, but and it'll like if you if you ever get to watch the movie again, pay really close attention. Yeah. Like it's the 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 I, I mean, it's really that, that the neon light tells you gives you. A lot, just the lighting around the street, uh, the light shining in her bedroom, which is—I don't know why she didn't put up a blackout curtain or something—but just <laughs> it's uh, it's it it. There's a lot of information here that is not coming out of characters' mouths, and that is something that I always really appreciate. Yeah, I uh, I'll jump in here because I'm I'm was struck by because now we're at this place you know historically speaking where like you know the movie industry and you know all the the various hangers on or like what do we do are we doing streaming are we doing like theatrical only are we doing like you know what Warner Brothers is doing where it's like both and what's interesting about that is I'm wondering if there are going to be you know sometime in the next like five years sort of this this differentiation that starts happening because I feel like right now it's 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 really, really like hard to tell the difference between like a TV show and a movie. And, you know, like it's, it's, we're at the point where we're even like, why are we even still having that conversation even, you know? So, but, but what was striking about this film was it felt like there was a lot of that stuff that you're talking about, Brandon, with like the colors and how it's signaling, you know, plot information. I have a hard time imagining that playing well, if you're like watching this on streaming and you're like only half watching it, like, yeah, I, and yeah. that is you you mentioned active watching earlier too and that is something that even like I watched Dune on HBO Max and I have not yet been able to go see it in a, on in theaters cuz other stuff is come and and uh Katie's judging me for it um and it was you know I did it uh, after after my wife went to bed and you know I was trying to do it my best to pay attention but it's like it's just it's so easy to get distracted when you're not when you're sitting on your couch um, and I love that's my favorite movie this year. Like I'm not, I'm not not saying anything anything bad about Dune. I'm saying um, I'm making fun of my own bad viewing habits. Um, so it, yeah, it's a, it's a very it's a very different thing. And uh, some creators are getting wise to it and making content that's better suited to be viewed at home. Um, and you still have you know like cinema is cinema, and I really wanted to stick around and kind of. Not to say that I don't want it to change, but I want it to, I want it to mean something, and I want movies to be made for the big screen, and I want to. That's how I want to experience them. Yeah, um, just real quick, I love that uh, distinction: content versus cinema, because I feel like that's sort of where 
a lot of these um, bigger companies and some of these franchise, uh, you know, the big franchises that are se seemingly taking over, you know, the movie industry. It just feels like that's kind of where they're trending. And I'm, I'm happy that there are some filmmakers and companies uh, who are sort of like, like, no, 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 we're going to like design this as the cinema experience and you'll still be able to watch it later if you want to. But like, like we're expecting active viewing. We're going to do visual kind of like storytelling as opposed to just dialogue. And, and yeah, I mean, I, whether or not you need the physical spaces to like have that, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe one day we'll get rid of them. I, I hope not, but, but I, I, that's, that's a really useful distinction, like cinema versus content, I think. And this film definitely falls on like the more, very self-consciously so is like cinematic cinema. As, as a communications and film scholar, I, I literally have a paper idea formulating in my head for on cinema but I also just I think this this is the greatest time of the year for me <laughs> I call like like the season when everything comes out in the theaters my actual Christmas you know and it's so, great because it lasts for like three months I know <laughs> but I I think I don't know I I'm just struck by how good a lot of the films coming out right now are and i hate the adage of that coming up every year at the oscars we had so many good films this year like all right we just, know but but this year actually i am really struck by by the cinema that is coming out and not just and a lot of a lot of these movies were made during a a, a global pandemic like i think I last night soho was shot before that but it was like yeah. I, I'm just wondering if that has anything to do with it, too. You know, like Belfast, written, shot, edited during the pandemic. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I want to keep on that some more. So, you know, I know Last Night in Soho is kind of overlapping that pandemic timeline a bit. But I don't know. A lot happens in that editing process. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of the um, the restraints of the pandemic on that industry made filmmakers rely more on traditional cinematic filmmaking you know showing over telling because i think that's the difference in this content versus cinema discussion that's popped up with this movie so that the telling is in the content but the showing is in the cinema so if people are you know stretched for resources and and people to uh, shoot with then you have to rely on showing so i'm and interested there's there's so much in in this movie that is and i would say probably more than edgar edgar wright has done before in my opinion um there's just a lot just a lot of information conveyed visually like i uh to i don't want to say to it to its detriment because at first i think it's effective but like the the faceless gentleman at the, the when when that first happened, I was I I was through like my my jaw dropped. So I was like, because I knew that it's so clear what he's trying to say there. Like, I, unfortunately, I think they it's it's a device that's used a little too much. Um, but when it's you know we we, we touched on she's kind of dreaming that she's this sandy person um, who wants to be a singer and then. Sandy gets an audition and then turns out that it's a gentleman's club and then she gets coerced and pro into prostitution, 
which is fucking awful. Um, but the and you know it's a result of that is you know all the men start to blend together, and it's at first I think a really effective device, and they didn't have to tell me that that's, a, that that's what it was. It's just you know there's it's they're almost like ghosts, but they're not ghosts. You know what I mean? They're they're she's uh, Eloise certainly is hallucinating because she's she doesn't want to go to sleep. After after a certain point in the movie, she's realized kind of what's happening to her, and she doesn't want to go to bed, and she's trying to find other ways to do that. But, you know, if, you, if you've ever seen a, a Freddy Krueger movie, you know that if you try to stay awake, it, it, it only works for so long, and then it's, you, you know, you, you, it's, it starts to happen anyway. <laughs> um, uh, really hitting home for me as a, as a new dad, you know. I've, uh, I've been living this uh, try-to-stay-awake lifestyle, and you're right. You do eventually fall asleep. Um, so <laughs> that's really resonating with me. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I will say that like, and I hate to say this cause it's just like, it's, it's the thing I always think about when I'm watching movies and I don't ever think it's a smart point, but I, I can never not think it, but I, uh, I feel like this is a 90 minute movie that was stretched to two hours. And I feel like a lot of, I don't, I don't disagree with that. You know, like the, after after singing just singing the praises of the faceless men, I you know I think it it's it's overused. It's a, it's it's it goes on a little too long, um, and there are some beats that like almost just don't make sense. You know she's she's trying to do research about uh, uh, about missing persons because she thinks that uh, maybe uh, maybe Jack, who's played by um, uh, Matt Smith, uh, she thinks she he he may have murdered Sandy. Um, so she's, you know, doing research on missing persons in the library, but she's dozing in and out, and then she uh, tries to escape the faceless men who are kind of bleeding into her consciousness, and then pulls a knife on a classmate, and it's kind of a thing that doesn't really get resolved, you know, like, okay, so, uh, uh, Katie, you're, you're in the library uh, late, late at night trying to finish uh, a turn paper, and then someone uh, was, uh, is... Screaming down the hallway and pulls a knife on you. How do you react to that? I I am playing dead. <laughs> yeah, you know. I mean, and she's I, in the movie. She's like security. You know, she runs off, but it's at the end of the movie, everything's okay. Yeah, and it's you, you know, know, it was kind of a, kind of a weird choice there. First, you know, weird, it's, and but, I, I bring it up. I bring it up as something that I think probably could have been lost, and it wouldn't. We wouldn't. It wouldn't have cost us very much to tighten the movie up a bit, kind of like Dan was saying. Yeah, for sure. And I also just there was a little too many twists and turns at the end. I think, you know, I was like, all right, so now we got to deal with this. Now she's in a relationship. Now there's a thing here. Now there's this. Now there's this person is this person. You know, and so it was. It just kind of like I needed those those twists to be integrated into act one for sure you know the foreshadowing to come in and then more of those b plot elements to develop an act two i i'm uh, glad you brought up the boyfriend you know the the performance is fine it's a perfectly charming guy but you know she's a uh in her mind experiencing all of this like sexual abuse and it's kind of like she probably it didn't seem like she should be in a headspace to be 
forming a relationship with another person at that it's it, it that's that's uh one thing that didn't quite work for me i think i see how i see, i definitely see how but on the other hand he acts as a segue into reality right so that's what he's there for and that's fair and she like she kind of uses him as a device to maintain consciousness it's like no the last thing i want to do is go home and go to sleep um yeah i i will say though that i don't think any of the movie would work if eloise's state of mind wasn't so ambiguous because there's a question of is she psychic is she seeing ghosts is she schizophrenic and that's a fair point too we have we have not mentioned that she sees her her late mother in the mirror uh, mm-hmm. And it's something that her grandmother is aware of that she, but it's not, you know, it's never explained really. Right. And then even at the police station, they ask, is there a, a history of mental illness in your family? And she avoids the question because, you know, there's unresolved um, backstory with her own mother's suicide. So, you know, I spent the entire movie wondering if Ellie was going to commit suicide. And not knowing if it was like a possession kind of thing or a mediumship kind of thing or a mental illness thing or an abuse situation. I think they were all intertwined and the ambiguity of that, those circumstances for Ellie are what make this film work. Wondering how, how this whole plot is coming together cannot be explained in any of those ways because either way you look at it it's happening in ellie's head but it's also reality so you know i don't think the movie would work if if we were told specific things about ellie we're shown different ways that she could be affected but leaving that totally ambiguous and then adding that back in at the end when she sees her mother and Diana Rigg, you know, was, or was it Anya Taylor-Joy? Both it was Anya Taylor, it was the, their, Anya Taylor-Joy is the, turns out, the ultimately right. the young version of Diana Rigg's character. Yeah. So I think that that's a really important aspect of this movie that should not be answered. I think it needs to be ambiguous and works to the, to the extent that the audience is also thrown into a world of not knowing what's real and what's not. Yeah, I, I, I liked uh, that that point about the ending, especially in relation to the kind of like the twist uh, heavy nature of the last half, because that was also where I kind of started getting a little like, like, I don't know how specific I'm, uh, I can be, but just like the one that was like, for me, just like, okay, this is, this is weak. I, I think you may know what I'm talking about already, but like, Terrence Stamp is, uh, it's not who he said, not who you think it is. And it's just like, okay. All right. <laughs> I I do always appreciate seeing Terrence Stamp uh, in a. I. Yeah, I, it, it was it was fine. There probably could have been less of him, because I mean, it, you know, it, it felt like they were they had the same exact response. Like they wanted Terrence Stamp in their movie, and that was that was good enough. You know, I, <laughs> like, but also like I think it was, I do think it was a relevant piece of information for Ellie to discover. You know, it was not for for a while. She thinks it's it's Jack who was the the man who who ultimately forced uh, mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, forced Sandy into into prostitution, and it turns out to be the cop who like was just trying to look after her, you know. But then there's a lot of, especially early in the movie, there's a lot of really gross men um, who give her really uncomfortable attention. Um, and even though, uh, or I'm sorry, who give Ellie really uncomfortable attention, and even though it's you know it's revealed that Terrence Stamp plays this cop who was kind of kind of set up as a um, a man who might take advantage of Sandy, but turns out he you know really he was looking out for her, um, but then later in life he still he becomes like a weird creepy old man. Um, yeah, so it's. I mean, you just can't, no offense yeah, to you two gentlemen, but you can't trust a bro, <laughs> no matter who they are. <laughs> I mean, really, I don't, I, I carry a, um, I have a little pocket knife on my keychain and a little stabber tool because I can't, you know, go to the movie theater without w- wondering if even the cop's going to follow me. So I totally got that point of like making it ambiguous. I mean, and that is... Katie, that's one of the reasons I, I – because Dan and I had planned this for a couple of weeks, and then I asked you to be here because I was curious how, you know, as a as a young woman, how does this compare to your own experience? And, you know, oh, if, if there's anything on that point that you can add to the conversation. Sure. I'm happy to. Um, obviously, this movie is very fantastical in the sense that, like, you know, things get really weird. But in terms of, like, the the – occurrences with like creepy guys I was just like yep sounds about right (laughs) I mean I have I mean the cab driver at the beginning of the movie gross but also I was like not surprised like my best friend is a flight attendant and the things that she has told me that happen to her on a daily basis far surpass anything that has happened to me but I mean I had a very creepy experience where a guy got into my cab. I've had a very creepy experience of like being a teenager in New York and some dudes thought I was a prostitute. <laughs> I can't, you know, I've walking down the street had, you know, all kinds of just, but the stuff in this movie though, it, it was, it's just, it seems like a daily occurrence to me, you know? So I was actually thinking watching, you know, Anya Taylor-Joy and um, Thompson McKenzie's characters. I was like, oh my God, just walk away. I was like, why aren't you just like, <laughs> you know, I was just like, get out. So, so normal. And, how, and I, you know, I, I thought the movie was great. And I thought it handled those things well because it is female-centered characters. But I was like, yeah, this was directed by a man <laughs> just because it made yeah, and it's a written and directed by a man. I was like, that's not a big deal, <laughs> you know. I was like, I understand, like, the setup of, like, the cab driver being gross, but, like, I was like, that's literally an everyday occurrence. Like, a female director would not have played that up. Which is... uh, (laughs) Let me jump in here, because I I threw on, uh, to prep for this, I I watched, like, the first half hour of of Repulsion again, and, you know, it's Roman Polanski, so... It's gross. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's it's roman polanski doing this kind of thing where he's like focusing this film on Catherine, the the woman's played by Catherine Deneau, a very young Catherine Deneau. Mm-hmm. she is a very shy um sexually repressed character like uh thomas and mckenzie in this film mm-hmm. and the whole point of the movie is to like kind of ostensibly make you empathize with her as she 
finds herself being kind of subjected to the male gaze, these like creepy guys, mm-hmm. and, and goes crazy. And, you know, it's very, very much like you can just feel how this is a film where it's like, yeah, you're trying to get some sympathy, but it's also like, it's the lurid spectacle of her being repressed and then crazy. Yeah. Um, And this film feels like it wants to be kind of a corrective to that, like sort of similar kind of setup story, but kind of underlining like, no, 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 no. This is like, we are empathizing very actively with this character yeah. But it, it feels like when you start pulling apart some of the cracks, uh, that's where you get some really interesting kind of inconsistencies and contradictions. Like the other one that kind of comes to mind is like, yes, this is a movie about uh, women who are being, you know, sexually abused and sort of coerced into prostitution. Um, but yet you still do kind of have these like male sort of savior figures who are kind of like, hovering around the edge, you know, like there's sort of like the parallel to the sort of, you know, the scuzzy dudes who are hovering around the edge. And there's just like stuff like that, which is very like, you know, you, you, you can kind of see, you know, sort of some of this, this tension, I think, kind of in these moments. Yeah. I thought it was also very easy to villainize the character of Sandy. And I thought that they steered away from that just enough at the end where like her actions were not condoned but they were also understood and so I appreciated that that felt good to me but you know these little moments that like you know like like you said Dan like they you want to empathize with these characters like those little moments I was just like as a woman I was just like all right like yes I empathize but I was like what's new (laughs) like show me why this is actually like an instance that I need to see on screen you think maybe um, I don't know. I'm I'm I I kind of am wondering if in Edgar Wright's imagination, like consciously or not, if his like target audience is more guys, you know, because it almost feels a little bit like guys, guys, like don't do this. Yeah. <laughs> don't good. be creepy. No, I think that's a very valid question. I hadn't thought of that, but so it's a cautionary tale. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I also I mean, it's, it's, say, it's easy to understand that you just shouldn't creep on people. And you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't abuse think, them. You would but. think it's not that simple. <laughs> you would think. But also, like the Sam Claffin character, I just want to say, you know, like you, you see the older version. Sam Claffin, this the, the cop guy, the dude that was in the Hunger Games? Yeah. 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 Like he's a fantastic actor. He is well sought after. He's very successful. That character, you can say yes or no, maybe a male savior. I don't know. It didn't bother me that much, just in the sense that I was like, why are you wasting Sam Claffin? He was in like five seconds of this film. And I was like, I want to see more of that interaction here. Is he the good cop or the bad cop? I want to see more of like that part, you know, because I I feel like there may have been more of that on the cutting room floor that maybe just slowed the movie down at that point. Because Sam Claffin is 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 a name you want to build. Oh yeah. So I, I'm wondering if there was more of the, um, of the like police plot in Sandy's part of the story that would mirror the plot point of Ellie going to the cops as well. But I was like, why are you wasting Sam Claffin? And that could have been a much more interesting progression for the for the older version of that character too, to like tie those two points together. And I think that would have made a lot more sense in why we have this creepy old guy walking around. 
you know that that makes sense and i i I do want to add that like you you mentioned it that it would be really easy to villainize sandy and like it's at least while i was sitting there watching it um starting about when uh taron stamp gets hit by the car through the big through the big climax when we find out that uh the diana rig is sandy and is um uh ill uh, <laughs> the because of all these terrible things it's like it takes some some interesting steps where it like i felt it kind of confused what it was trying to say for a little while um you know because it's, it's Okay, we we find out that it was actually Sandy who who murdered dozens of dozens of men um, because the, because they abused her, um, and then she it like after she has stabbed the boyfriend, um, she then takes a turn when the house is on fire and then says, "Go save the boyfriend," or you know, whether save the boy and get out. Um, and then at the end, you you mentioned it earlier where she sees. Um, uh, she goes to she does her fashion show uh, after all of this is resolved, and then uh, the very last uh, kind of coda to the movie is she sees her mother and Sandy in the mirror again, um, and it's okay. Until this moment, I kind of felt like we thought Sandy was like a a, a villainous piece, you know, like obviously. Ter- like terrible, terrible, unspeakable things happened to her, um, and but she re- re- like responded in the wrong way or something. It's but then her and uh, Sandy and Eloise are on good terms at the end, at least you know based on what I can gain from the brief look that they share. There's no there's no dialogue, um, so it you know so it's how did you guys interpret that 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 series of beats? Because I'm curious um, if I'm just overreading it or if i miss something um because it just seems like it's try you know it seems like it's going one way and then it tries to tell me something else and then it turns again and tries to tell me something else again um and i was curious like, well, how did you how did you guys feel about the ending finding out that diana rig uh was not that sandy was not murdered she actually uh killed all these abusive men um and then you know she she dies in the fire etc but then her and eloise seem to be okay after she's tried to murder Eloise. So, I'm just, yeah, so how how do you guys interpret the ending? I'm curious. I'll, uh, Dan, I'll, go first. Uh, yeah, I'll start because I, uh, I may have to put baby down in a minute. But, um, you know, I, I, I want to, first I'll, I'll just go back to something Catherine said, just sort of about the ambiguity at the end, um, which is, you know, like not knowing fully whether or not, like, how much of this is a dream, how much of this is, like, Twilight Zone kind of like shenanigans. Yeah. yeah, right, right. And and so especially coming kind of after this sort of sequence where it feels like the film has gotten very like it just it just feels like it's juggling too many like different sort of goals for 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 a little while near the end. Um so I like that it was able to kind of like pull back in those final moments and sort of end on kind of a moment of of really pronounced ambiguity. Because aside from the fact that you're not really sure what's going on with with Eloise. Um, yeah, the other unresolved question, um, which is, I think, kind of needs to be unresolved, is just sort of like, okay, what do we make of Diana Rigg and sort of like what, what she's doing? 
And I think some of this is like, you know, speaks to um, the, the, the smartness um, of, I don't know if that's a word, but like of casting Diana Riggs. I feel like just the, the number of associations that she's accumulated over the course of her career from like the Avengers, James Bond film. Yeah, she's a Bond girl. Yeah, all these other things, you know, like you just have all of these like kind of built in, like for many viewers are going to have a built in kind of connection to this character, which is going to play off of like, you know, the horrific sort of stuff that she's she's telling you. And I'm just thinking back to that, like the explanation scene, which is like usually such a cliche kind of moment of like the killer explains the plan, you know, but just that close up was just very, very, um, there was just a lot of tension in that close up between like the little old lady kind of vibe that she gives off and the, the very menacing, uh, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of thing that she does too. So I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking back a little bit to just, you know, this is what genre films do, you know, and Edgar Wright is, is nothing if not a, a guy who's really, really into his movie genres. And the most effective genre films tend to be the ones where they kind of raise a question. They sort of, you know, sort of bring up an issue. In this case, it's, uh, you know, mental, mental illness, um, sexual assault, some of these other, these thorny questions. And then they don't really resolve, you know, these, these questions. They just kind of like leave them sort of lingering. And I, I liked how this film you know, very kind of knowingly sort of embraces that that quality of genre films where it's not trying to nail it down and be like, she's bad. You know, it's not it's not trying to be like a very simple cautionary kind of morality tale, like a really nice moral. It's sort of being like, all right, here's the crazy old lady, you know, credits. So so I, I, I like that. That's that's, uh, you know, I think the movie would not work if you didn't kind of have that ambiguity, that double ambiguity at the end with, you know, how are you supposed to feel about these two, these two women? You know, I feel like that's sort of a, a great thing to leave, to, to kind of leave the audience with. What do you think, Katie? I thought it was very interesting to choose to use the young Sandy instead of the Diana Rigg Sandy. And that just, of course, also impacts the ambiguity of the question of Ellie's mind right? She, is she psychic? Is she mentally ill? Is it because of abuse? What, you know? And I just found it interesting that like, you know, her mom is the only one that she sees, you know, in, in that headspace, right? Whatever that is. And then the two, the choice to use Anya Taylor-Joy for that shot at the end, where she is now one of those people that she sees, I, I mean, I think anybody can interpret interpret it any way there is certainly a sense of ambiguity about why and how and what's the moral if there is one right but I felt like it was a really subtle way of showing that that young Sandy that died you know that young Sandy whose life was taken away from her by Jack and all these men that that's the person that was like resolved from that experience you know like that person that young sandy can now be laid to rest right instead of the older sandy who is so burdened by her abuses right so i thought that was an interesting thing and just from a standpoint of we know that ellie's mom had committed suicide and so this person is with her and hopefully like unburdened you know and I felt like there was some kind of parallel there with using 
Anya Taylor-Joy's version of the Sandy character there, just as kind of like a, I don't know if it's like a cautionary tale for Ellie. It certainly is for the audience, but maybe it is in the same sense of being cautionary about her own mother's experience in that lineage. So I thought there was just an interesting parallel there and perhaps a reason for showing that young Sandy versus Alexandra. That's a, an interesting, no, because I, I wouldn't, that's not a thought I had. Like, it's, a, it's, it made enough sense to me for it to be young Sandy, I guess. Like, I didn't, I, I didn't have the thought uh, that it could have been Diana Rigg at all. Um, and this, maybe it's, you know, maybe she feels a little bit kind of a kindred spirit with, with Sandy, with, with you, with young Alexandra, but. Um, all, you know, old Alexandra turned out to be terrifying. Um, uh, bless you. Yeah. That's, uh, but, um, I just felt I, like, you know, yeah. it, it seemed to me like, like Ellie's mom was kind of frozen at a time of her death, you know, at least for Ellie. I don't, we don't really know when that happened. That's a good point. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's unclear. Like it seem it seems recent, but not, right. maybe it's not that recent, you know, it's, it doesn't really say. So it, you know, I want, if, if her mom is like stuck in time in her head, then it would kind of make sense to me that young Sandy would be stuck in time in Ellie's head more than this person that she just figured out was the same person right before she died. You know, she definitely has a very intertwined psyche relationship personality wants desires with young sandy and so i can imagine maybe that's why that's emphasized it's very easy to say it's on you taylor joy <laughs> you know i'm banged off of that but uh, there's i think there's a whole a multitude of possible ambiguous reasoning behind that choice well it would that would tie into um the other thing that i, I really quite liked about this film, which is like that whole like opening kind of hour when she's in the real world, London, you know, and you see how she's like modeling her hair after, you know, she dyes her hair blonde, you know, she starts kind of really going all in on like the 60s aesthetic, which she was already, you know, kind of all into, like, I think the first or second shot of the film, you like are literally seeing her, uh, her apartment. Uh, and it's oh. just like third in the Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I hate to, to derail you there, but I loved the the intro where it's like it starts as a a little box um, where you just see Ellie's silhouette and she starts to dance and the lights come up and it shows all of her '60s memorabilia and she's wearing a dress that she designed and it was just a very very interesting way to kind of set up that you know before any of this happens it's already in her head that she likes this kind of style um, and I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt there but you you, you mentioned oh, the opening and it really that was uh, one thing that really stuck out to me as, as I was sitting there. That's also, I'll add to that's uh, that is one of two moments in the film, which is more or less directly uh, referencing repulsion. That's why I'm so oh, yeah. stuck. On that. Yeah. Cause that film takes place mostly in, in a small apartment and there's a lot of shots where, you know, it's a widescreen shot, but it's framed, you know, where there's like a door is the center of the shot and it, it makes the widescreen look very claustrophobic. Um, so there's a lot of that in, in repulsion, but 
but like the 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 psychological kind of thing that was 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 kind of being made i think with those moments is you know it's it goes back to that mystification demystification of the 60s thing i mean this is a kind of on one level a movie about like you know fetishizing the past you know you have a character and you have a filmmaker who are really kind of getting into just like wearing the clothes like kind of mimicking the style sort of playing the music and it's interesting to kind of see how the narrative actively kind of questions like okay yeah maybe you're maybe this nostalgia kind of memory isn't you know isn't really what's going on that's Um, exactly why this film reminded me of midnight in paris two very different vibes but for those those reasons alone, you know, the questioning of the era and the Midnight Paris with, with Owen Wilson, the, the Woody Allen movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that came to mind for me too. Um, you know, just I kept thinking about that scene at the end of Midnight in Paris where they like go back to the 20s and they're like, the 1890s, man. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a similar thing. And, you know, Tarantino is, is doing a similar thing too. I feel like this one is more more overtly demystifying whereas i don't know tarantino i think he thinks he's demystifying but actually is very much mystifying remystifying. right he's that's it's tarantino ising everything um uh, yeah uh any uh we're coming up we just rolled over an hour any um anything else we haven't uh touched on any uh closing thoughts I was just really struck by how interesting adding the horror element was. I wasn't expecting it from a quasi-period piece. Right. And I really felt like it was going to be, I was I was prepared for a psychological thriller, right? I was getting that, I was kind of pushed into that from Baby Driver a little bit. And I thought that that's where it was going to go, which is, I think, why I was wondering if Ellie was going to commit suicide. But to have that horror element thrown in, like, I thought it was more effective than, like, traditional horror, like The Conjuring, which I love, which Brandon, you and I have talked about. Oh, yeah. I was just struck by how well it fit in and how it was introduced in such an overt way and how it worked. I was just surprised. I was just, you know, I don't know if if everybody would think it would work or not, but if you can go with it, I think it does. I agree. What about you, Dan? Closing thoughts? Yeah, I would, I, I would agree with uh, pretty much everything that y'all have said. Um, you know, I, if, if I'm really being nitpicky, yeah, I could, I could zone in on some of that stuff in the, the back half that we're all kind of in agreement is a little, seems like everybody, you know, just the critics, just everyone I've read reviews by seems to think that those, those, the second half just isn't as strong as the first, but it's, it's, it's not as focused. Like it, yeah, it's, we could, that you, you say that there's a 95 minute movie in here somewhere. And I think most of that trimming can happen in the second half of the movie. Yeah, absolutely. But if you zoom out, you know, and you sort of just like look what it's doing kind of on a, on a macro kind of level with just like, you know, the cinema references sort of, examining and you know critiquing that like fascination with earlier eras um doing that kind of in content style um just you know the craft the stuff we've talked about with like just the colors and the way that this is really like you could watch this on tv but like you're gonna have more fun if you can if you can get it in a in a cinema so i agree yeah i'm releasing uh, your movies in cinemas 
Yeah, Please. right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm in for, I'm in favor of this just as a, uh, you know, a good throwback, you know, to like an older kind of, you know, form of, of cinema, good kind of like, you know, a, a good counterpiece, honestly, like to a lot, like, a, you know, it's a mainstream film, you know, it's like not something that you have to really like dig and hunt to find, but it's like a really good counterpoint to what feels like is now just a market that's like two and a half hour, like epics, you know, which mm-hmm. some of them may be good, some of them may be bad, but you know, I, I hope that there's there's still space for like those like little like twenty thirty million dollar kind of like you know sort of weird kind of offbeat movies that are still kind of in the mainstream sort of space. You know, that's uh, so that that's 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 where this one you know really kind of hit for me. So, and I think it does that very well. I think it knows where it lives and it delivers for that that audience and that budget and the expectations. I will add though that. You know, we, we touched on it at the beginning that it's a little triggering, <laughs> which it definitely yeah. is. And I think that's an important disclaimer um, when talking about this film. It's certainly like a like anxiety-driven piece for anybody, but especially anybody that's um, a woman or been in that kind of situation before. So, And that's I, something I, that, you know, I knew it was a, a horror-slash-thriller is kind of how it was marketed, but the trailers don't really fill you in as to what those those elements are other than there's something weird about what's going on in the city. You know, there, there's, there's something weird going on is what all the trailers said, you know, and yeah. that's why, um, you know, I, it was, a, it was a surprise to me. And I think it, you know, it's a, it's a welcome film. There's a lot of, a lot of really interesting commentary and a lot of that stuff. Yeah. I definitely left this movie being emotionally affected. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think movies should do that. Absolutely not. I was definitely, thrown for uh anxiety loop on this one i have a lot of anxiety as a person anyway um and i don't know if if you're that kind of person i'd recommend watching it at home even though it's where you're you're in somewhere you're in a safe place and they're you know they're yeah yeah even though it's stunning on you know on on the big screen but you know if you're a film person and you like movies and you take the the care of like making sure that you can watch movies at home well go for it go for it just from the sense of like yeah it's a doozy (laughs) just add here that it's it's really fascinating that we're kind of like describing a movie that is simultaneously we're like describing as like really fun really colorful really inventive but also really like triggering, really anxiety inducing. And, it, and it's all of these things. And that is, that's wonderful. You know, so there, you know, we've, we've talked about some things maybe it doesn't succeed on, but just the, the fact that so many of these elements come together and work as well as they do is a, a credit to, to Edgar Wright and all the, all of the cast in this movie, which is yeah. like phenomenal. It was like, it's, I was, um, this is real. I was I really taken with last I night. So I really enjoyed happened. it. I'm sorry. Say it again. I just wish I had more Sam Clapham. That's the only thing that I would want to change besides, you know, the pacing towards the end. But my one actual change, I would want to see more Sam Clapham. Um, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for um, coming to chat, guys. I, uh, I always appreciate having you on. And I hope to do more with more than one panelist here or there. You know, it's, it's scheduling is already a thing. And we only got to do this because uh, I didn't get to go to work today because I don't have a car. So I, um, I, I appreciate you guys being available, and your, your thoughts are always welcome. And 
If, uh, like I said earlier, anyone who has enjoyed this video, please hit that subscribe button. It's down below me somewhere. Um, and uh, have, uh, have a good time at the movie theaters. Thanks, guys. Thanks.